You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. In today's message, Pastor Josh continues into week two of our 10-week series on the Ten Commandments. He's teaching on the second commandment today, given to God's people, that they should have no carved images. As we listen, may the Holy Spirit work in us to accomplish whatever He desires for us today. Well, good morning, church. How are we? Great. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you open to Exodus 20? Exodus 20 is going to be where we begin our time today, but we're going to spend a majority of our time in Exodus chapter 32. So if you find Exodus, you were in the right spot. Uh, Just know that we're going to jump 12 chapters over at some point in the morning. Uh, As you are turning there, we, we are in week two of our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And I am so thankful that you have chosen to join us today, whether you are in this room or online. We we are so honored that you would would worship here and and you would open God's Word with us today. Um, The Ten Commandments, as you can imagine, are a pretty big deal and have always been since the day that they were first heard and then received on stone tablet. And just remember, a little bit of our background here, these commandments were given around 1440 BC to God, from, from God to his people through his servant Moses. And we'll speak more about that in just a moment. But as we look at the second commandment today, we remember the first, you shall have no other gods. Uh, If you would like a sermon on that, go back and listen to last week's sermon. Uh, Feel free to to go back and and review. But then this week we come to uh, the second commandment, and it is the commandment, you will have no carved idols. And there is so much to that very small command, and and hopefully by the end of our time today, we will have a deeper appreciation for the command, and by God's grace, maybe we will have a chance to actually examine our own lives to see if any of those things exist, and maybe we would deal with them rightly. But to be honest, as I have started uh, in this sermon series, and particularly studying for this week, there was a lot of childhood memories that came flooding back into my mind. One particular, uh, I was about nine or 10 years old, and I remember my mom and I going to Walmart in Picayune. Uh, and this is the time that Walmart uh, wasn't just kind of like the entrance area, like the one that we have here with like the, you can refill your water bottles, maybe get a $4 Coca-Cola, and then go into the store. This was back in the day when it was the, the, the kind of lobby area, I would even call it, was filled with video games. Do anybody remember those days? Were the video games were all there, and then there were the trinket machines, like the tiny toy machines that were like 25 cents. And so I remember this day vividly because I was filthy rich on this day. I had $5 and quarters in my pocket. I mean, like it was, it was the day that it couldn't, like I couldn't get out of school fast enough to go to Walmart with my mom because this was going to be the greatest day ever. So my mom goes in shopping and I take my $5 and quarters and I go and have the time of my life playing all the video games like Golden Tee and then like uh, NFL football, like all the things that were there. And I remember getting to the end of my money. And time had, had gone by because you used to, that money would go a long way. Time had gone by and I had 50 cents left in my pocket and I would, I would reach and say, what am I going to do with this 50 cents? I've played all the games. I don't know what to do. So I look over at the little, little toy machine, the little trinket machine, and I see something that catches my eye. I thought it was kind of cool. There was this thing, most of them cost 25 cents, and there was one machine that would cost you 50 cents. And so in my logic, 50 cents is for the rich people, and I was a rich people today, right? And so I went over to that machine, I put it in, I turned the little handle, 
And then out popped this little egg thing. You guys remember those things that you would pop and out comes the toy. And inside was this white rabbit's foot. That was a keychain, and it had like the, the little, uh, little dotted, like little link around it. And so I thought, this is the coolest thing ever. Like who cut off a rabbit's foot, stuck it in the machine at Walmart, and I was lucky enough to get it. Praise God for this great day. And so I popped my little egg open, I put it around my finger, and I just remember spinning my little rabbit's foot as I walked through the aisles of Walmart. And I don't know if you guys remember this. Maybe, maybe some kids still do this today where their parents are, and you're just kind of looking down the aisles to see if you see your mom and dad. Anybody? No? Just me? Great. And so we would walk around. And I remember seeing my mom, and I came walking up, spinning my rabbit's foot on my finger. And uh, as I walk up, my mom looked, said, what is that? And I said, oh, lucky rabbit's foot. And I remember her eyes getting really big. And she didn't say anything and she kept walking. I thought, well, that's kind of weird. And so I followed her around the store, still spinning my rabbit's foot on my, my finger. We, we go through the checkout line. We go to the car. We're driving home. And she said, hey, can I see that? And I was like, yeah, mom, check it out. And she looked at it. And the same time, she's rolling down the window and she chunks it as far as she could and says, you will not bring that in our house. And I'm like, what did I, like, what did I bring in our house? Like, we're in the car. What are you talking about? And I was like, mom, why? what's the big deal? She said, God does not want us to have that and it's gross. And I was like, well, I don't know what God has against a rabbit's foot, but it probably is kind of gross, but I didn't think much more towards it until we started going home. And I asked the question, I said, mom, why doesn't God want me to have my rabbit's foot? I mean, it was 50 cents. It, what, what's the big deal? And she was like, I don't know the big deal fully. I just know the 10 commandments tell us we're not supposed to have it. And that honestly stuck with me until this very moment, a 41-year-old man who works through the scriptures, getting ready to preach the sermon, and that memory came flooding back, hitting me in the face. And to be honest, my mom wasn't all the way wrong. I'm sad she chunked my rabbit's foot. But I think she had good intentions. And, and more, more to that in just a second, okay? E even though I believe her thought of, of God doesn't want us to have this, this rabbit's foot in our house, um, and her, her action of chunking it out the window, I do believe it was rooted in the second commandment. So let's read it. Let's read the second commandment. You already heard it, but I want to read it again. And I want you to see if, if her actions to you were valid. Okay? Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or anything likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the heaven or on the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I don't think God prohibits buying rabbits' feet from Walmart. I do believe that my mom was right in me buying that rabbit's foot, calling it into question. And I'll explain more as to why I believe that as we move through the text this morning. But before we jump in, just a quick refresher of where we are in the importance of these, these Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments are all found in Exodus chapter 20 which are part of the Pentateuch or the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible. This is what Moses writes 
to give to God's people, to give them their history. So, so they have had oral history. It has been passed down generation by mouth from one generation to the other, but they've never had a written in, in scroll law. And now they finally have it sitting before them. And we believe the dating of this to be 1440 BC, around that time. In context of the Ten Commandments, remember, God's people had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God and his grace miraculously rescues them from Egypt and from slavery by his mighty power through the leadership of Moses. They leave Egypt and they're headed towards the promised land, the land in which even before they went to Egypt, they were promised long before. And for three months, they have been on a journey. Since they've left Egypt, they are going towards the promised land. Three months later, they find themselves in the wilderness of Sinai, meaning they were at the base of the mountain. And as they are standing at the base of the mountain... God makes a promise with Moses and the people. We, we go back, we, we heard this last week, but Exodus 19.5 says this. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commands, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. All right, so, so they get to the mountain, they hear God's voice say to them, if you do what I tell you to do, if, if, you, if you love me and you're obedient to me, your life is going to be better than you could have ever hoped, asked for, or imagined. You are going to be blessed in ways that you can't fathom. Everywhere you go, every place the sole of your foot touches is going to be incredibly blessed by me. Now, that, that would be conditional. So it would be if you do these things, then this would be true. But then in the very next line, we we saw last week, and and this is the line that all the Ten Commandments need to be viewed through, and this is Exodus 19, verse 6, and you shall be to me, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God gives them the promise that, that if they keep the commands, they're going to be blessed, but also the reason that God is sending them out, the reason that God has chosen this people group specifically is for them to be two things. Number one, a kingdom of priests. God's representation to this earth, to everybody that they meet, and they're to be a holy, which means set apart nation. So they're not to be Egypt and they're not to be Canaan where they're about to go. And they are going to be something completely and totally uniquely different. All right. So with that understanding, God calls his people together and gives them these 10 commandments. He speaks loudly and directly to the people, giving them the 10 commandments, which is a measurement of God's righteousness and his purposeful guidance keeps them out of Egypt, like going backwards, and keeps them on mission going forwards. The people of God hear God's voice. Again, if you were to go back and read, God's speaking to them audibly, but they are seeing lightning and thunder. As God speaks the way that Moses describes it, as if the sound of loud trumpets And then they look up to the mountain, and it looks like the mountain itself is on fire. So through thunder and lightning and the sound of trumpets and fire and smoke, God says this to the people and says, will you keep this promise? Is this a good agreement for you? And everybody immediately comes together, all the people of God, three million plus, resound back in a voice and say, yes, we love this. We love you, God. We will keep your commands. Just a few verses later, they pull Moses aside and say, hey, Moses, if it would be okay with you, we would, l- we would never want to hear his voice again. Matter of fact, why don't you go talk to him and then you tell us what he said, because if he speaks to us again, we feel like we're going to die. 
And so they, they, they tell Moses this. Moses seems to be agreeable there. But Moses tells them before he goes back up the mountain to meet with God again, he says, God is good. You can trust his goodness. The reason that he spoke to you that way, the reason that he, he is manifesting himself in this way is so that you can know that he is God like no other. There's no one in Egypt, no God in Egypt like this that you've ever experienced, and there'll be no God that you ever come across that will speak to you in that way and have the power that he has. And so Moses tries to encourage them again. So what do you think that they do next? Moses goes back up to the mountain to meet with God. Do they watch? Do they wait and pray? Do they worship? Do they talk about the awesome things that God has done for the next three months or for the last three months of their journey? No. The very first thing that they do after saying to God, God, yes, we love you. Yes, we will keep that command. Yes, that seems like the best thing we have ever heard. The very first thing they do is they break the first and second command. If you have your copy of God's word, this is where I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 32. And we have a lot of reading to do today. And so I'm going to read really fast. And you're going to buckle up and hang on. So maybe, maybe some questions as you're turning there. Maybe some questions that have crossed your mind. Are these Ten Commandments a big deal? Is God saying no carved images? Like, is that just like an artistic expression? Like, does God just not want us to express ourselves in that way? Is he, is he just trying to, to keep us from something that's, that's kind of trivial? The answer to, to all of those things hopefully will soon be on display for you. Let's read together verse 1 and set up everything. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses had delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of that land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. All right, so Aaron right here is the priest. He's the one charged of giving spiritual watch care over God's people. And the way the order of things should go, particularly anything that relates to God and his people, is Aaron should be the one who gathers the people and tells them what God has said. But what you find in the very first verse of chapter 32 is an inverted order. You see that Aaron does nothing of the such, and the people instead gather for themselves without speaking to Aaron, of course without speaking to God, because they already said, I don't want to do that, and Moses is, is up on the mountain, okay? And I'll give you more of a time frame for that in just a moment. But as they sit here, they, they start to get antsy, and they say, we need to worship something. We need a God who is going to go before us. So they gather themselves together, devise a plan, get Aaron, and say to him, get up, Aaron. And make for us gods who will go before us. And evidently, Aaron, being of sound mind, hopefully, begins to speak to them evidently about, hey, what are you doing? Like, like we just heard God from the mountain. Like, we just saw thunder and lightning, heard the voice of the trump. Like, all the things. What are we doing? And Moses, like, he's going to be back. And they said, we don't know. That Moses, that Moses who took us out of, of slavery and brought us into this wilderness, we don't know what's happened to him. So you get up. You get up, Aaron, and you make for us gods who will go before us. Now, their response, we, we don't know what happened to him, implied is he has been gone for a long time. 
What we see in the scriptures, particularly if you were to go back to Exodus 24, I believe, um, there's a moment where Moses has gone up to the mountain, then he comes back down to speak to the people, and he goes back up again and comes back down. And one of the times that he, he comes back down, there, there's a, an instance that's recorded that Moses' total time on the mountain is 40 days. So they had spent three months traveling, they get to the mountain, and then 40 days later, Moses is still up on the mountain. So with that, look at verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. It seems, hear me out, it seems that Aaron, the priest, the man of God, is trying to discourage the people by asking them to go get the gold earrings from their wives and kids, essentially saying this, if a delegation came to Aaron and said, get up, make for us uh, an image of gold, gods that will go before us, Aaron tries to deter them, it doesn't work, and instead he says, okay, tell you what, I, I'll get to work on it, but I want you first to go to your wives, and I want you to go to your kids, and I want you to take their gold from their ears and bring them in. And instead of doing that, the delegation, evidently, more than likely the men who are standing before him, take the earrings out of their their ears, which is going to be plentiful because there's three million people here, right? And they come and throw it before Aaron and say, here. Like these people are highly motivated. Verse four. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. And he made a golden calf. And they said, this is what the people said, listen to their words. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Guys, we're not talking about years removed. We're talking about days removed from the mountain shaking with thunder and lightning and trumpet and the voice of God speaking to them, promising them that they will be the most blessed nation the world has ever known. And now, 40 days later, they've decided it is in their best interest to create for themselves their own gods made from rings of gold out of their head. When Aaron finished the golden calf, he says to the people, the, the people, the people turn around and say to the other people, so, so essentially the leaders rise up in and of themselves and they say, this, this, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land. Aaron tries to make a really terrible situation somewhat better. Look at verse five. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made the proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast unto the Lord. The Hebrew here is Yahweh. So where the leaders, the, the men who evidently stand up before their own people and they make a declaration, these are your gods. Aaron says, oh, how can I turn this? How can I make this better? So he stands up, he makes an altar before it and says, hey, everybody, we want you to know that tomorrow, this isn't about other gods, this is about Yahweh. So with this, this calf that I've just fashioned, we're going to celebrate the feast of God. Verse 6, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, to drink, and then they rose up to play. Here's where things go from really bad to way worse. They began to worship the right way. They offered burnt offerings. They offered peace offerings. They ate, they drank, they stood, they danced, they played, they enjoyed life. Listen, these are all right responses to the goodness of God. 
but they were giving it all to the wrong thing. They, they, had, they had taken what God had prescribed for them in way of worship and way of life and said, I am not going to worship you. I'm going to worship what I've created before me. Because 40 days had passed. Their, their, their timeline wasn't being met. So they begin to take life into their own hands and they built for themselves an idol that would go before them and they created the image of a golden calf. All of those right responses, but they gave it to the wrong thing. And look what happens next. Look how God describes it. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, so, so they're on the mountain. Moses doesn't see it. He's removed from the people, but God sees all. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. Listen to the description that God says here. For your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. God tells Moses that he needs to go down the mountain because his, Moses' people, have corrupted themselves. The word for corrupted here, it is a really charged word. Corrupted can mean a lot of things, perverted, ruined, destroyed themselves. But the word picture here in Hebrew, and I don't want you to miss it, but I'm going to try to veil it in such a way because I think there are folks in this room that you're going to have to explain some things when I say this, okay? The word picture here is seeing an unfaithful spouse in the act of unfaithfulness. That's the picture. So God has just promised his people that he would be their God and they would be his people. And if they just, they just did what he said, if they just loved him, if they, if they were obedient to his will and to his word, that everything would go great for them. But almost, almost immediately, they decided, no, we decided we want to do it our own way. And the way that God describes it is, it's as if my spouse has been unfaithful to me and I have to watch it. That's the picture that God says in verse 7. The weight of this right worship to the wrong things is how that's described. This is, this is how God describes it. He continues it. Verse 8. They have turned aside quickly and out of the way that I've commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and they've worshipped it, sacrificing to it and saying, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, leave me alone, let my wrath, uh, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So just, just for a moment, I think we get a beautiful and powerful glimpse of God and the heart of God and how sin grieves him. I don't know if you ever wonder what sin would do to God or what sin does to the heart of God, but I do believe this may be the most accurate and vivid picture that we can get. Sometimes we view God as maybe just this aloof, gentle, old grandfatherly figure in the rocking chair that just kind of says, oh, that's no big deal. You just keep doing what you want to do. This paints a different picture. This paints God in the picture of a husband who adores his wife and has just walked through a marriage ceremony with her. And then all of a sudden, in the same breath as she's saying, I do, she proves with her life that she will not. And he watches it in detail. 
And so he tells Moses all of these things that are going on. And remember, Moses, Moses can't see what God can see. Moses doesn't know what God knows. But all he hears, all Moses hears is, these people have sinned against me in such a great and grievous way. They've created a calf before. And they said, they said, Moses, they said that these are the gods that led you out of Egypt. These are the gods that are going to go before you. Leave me alone, Moses, because I'm so angry right now. I'm about to wipe them off the face of the earth. That is what sin does, is it grieves the heart of the Father. This is God who is heartbroken. Verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and, and, and Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars in the heaven." And all this land that I've promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Listen to verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses was gracious to stand as an, an intercessor, to stand as a, an in-between between God and his people, and, and he begs God for mercy. He begs God not to give the people what they deserve. That's mercy. And so we get to verse 14, and we see God relent. But I want to be clear on what verse 14 is not. Verse 14 is not God forgiving the people. It is God relenting from his fullness of wrath that he had planned to put towards them. Look at verse 15 and following. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. Tablets that were written on both sides, in the front and the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Verse 16 is something that is to help you understand the stones that, that Moses carries are incredibly precious. Uh, going back to last week, we talked about what a covenant is. It's a, it's a legal binding agreement. It is as if one party and another party come together and they sign on the dotted line, and those stones were the terms of the agreement. It is the covenant spelled out, and it was to be to them a reminder. It was almost as if God's finger, if it were written in ink, the ink's not even dried yet. And Moses comes down the mountain. Verse 17, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near to the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, and he burned it with fire, and he ground it into powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses saw finally what God saw, and he was livid. 
He threw the stone tablets down and broke them, symbolizing the covenant being broken. Then he took the calf, he burned it, ground it in the powder, poured it in the water, and made the people drink every drop of it. No doubt this water filled with burned and ground up gold and wood would have been extremely bitter and awful. Moses wanted them to remember this moment for the rest of their days. Think washing your mouth out with soap times a billion. That they are filled and sick from what they are drinking and from this they are to remember what they have done in the sight of God. Then, so, so that, that's to the people. Then Moses turns to Aaron one, of the, one that was supposed to be trusted to care for the people. And this is what he asked in verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of the Lord burn hot, for you know the people. They are set on evil. For they said to me, make us idols that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me. Listen, listen to this line. It's unbelievable. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came a calf. Unbelievable. Come on, Aaron. They gave it to me. You threw it in the fire, and poof, out popped a calf. Miracle. But this next part, church, I want to warn you. It is rough. Verse 25, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, listen to these words carefully. He stood at the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Those are the priests, by the way, the, the, the line of priests that will to come. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and from, the gate, uh, from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his own son and his brother so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. That's a really hard statement. And if you were trying to study this, there may be a feel of injustice. How, how can a loving God do that to all of those people? But I want to be clear. They had sinned against holy God. In their sin, it separated them from God. Moses returns. He, he stands before God and asks God to relent. God does relent. And now Moses stands before the people and calls them to repentance. He gives them an opportunity, almost a line in the sand, and says, if you are on the side of God, today's a new day. If you are on the side of God, I want you to come join me. Follow me. Cross this line and be over here. And evidently, a lot of them cross that line, but not all. There were some who chose to say, I don't believe that God. I don't believe you, Moses. And so he lines up the priests, the, 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 the people of of Levi's tribe, tells them to put on their sword. And anybody who did not cross that line, they died that day. Moses gave them an opportunity to repent, to turn from their wicked ways, to come to the Lord's side. Many did, but not everybody did. 
But look what happens next. Look at verse 30. The next day Moses says to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So this is where atonement and forgiveness come into play. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses goes up before God and asks for forgiveness for the people. So serious about the people's forgiveness, Moses says, if necessary, God, if it would cause you to forgive them, then please take my name and write it out of your book. Kill me and save them. Here's the Lord's response. Verse 33. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place that I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Verse 35, And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron had made. As our worship team comes back up and we get to this time of response, I want to give you some some clarity because what we just read is 3,000 people died, but then kind of end with a statement of, and there was a plague that came on the people. We don't know much about that plague in Exodus 32, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we get a more clear picture. So if you write down that reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you know anything about the church at Corinth, it, it was a rough go. And there's a warning in 1 Corinthians 10, a warning against idolatry of of, of carved images, of, of, of worshiping rightly the wrong things. And there, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, reminding them that on this day, not 3,000 people died, but 23,000 people died. So whatever this plague was, killed another 20,000 people. Why would God allow that? Church, death is the cost of sin. For the wages of sin is death. That's not just a cute Bible verse that you've memorized when you were in GAs and RAs a long time ago. That's real. Okay, but what was their sin? What did they do that was so egregious that God would allow this? I believe that Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes in Romans chapter 1 in a way that uh, even though he was not speaking to Exodus 32, he was speaking to people living out Exodus 32 in the church at Rome. So I'll read it for us. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their own unrighteousness suppress truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of God for the image resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Essentially, 
They gave worship that was supposed to be for God alone to someone or something else. And to make it worse, they did it right after they promised to be faithful to God alone. One commentator wrote this. The reason this act was so egregious is because it is much like a spouse walking down the aisle of a church promising to be faithful to their spouse alone and then walking out of the room and being unfaithful in the same church building. Allow that graphic nature to fill your mind and understand that this is what God means when he says there, has, there can be no idols. There can be no right worship to the wrong things. So back to the rabbit's foot. The second commandment really doesn't have much to do with a rabbit's foot or a cow, but it has everything to do with what you do with a rabbit's foot and a cow. The second commandment, along with the first and the third and the fourth, are all about how we rightly worship God. If I bought that rabbit's foot thinking, finally, all my problems are gone, the rabbit's foot is going to fix it all. My mom had every reason to roll down that window and chunk it as far as she possibly could. So as we close today, the question that we've, we've, got, we've got to consider, do we have any carved images in our life? What are they? Maybe it's not a rabbit's foot. Maybe it's not a golden calf. So I created a short test that I use for me that hopefully will be beneficial for you. It is, it is certainly not perfect, but I do think it gets to the point. Is there anything outside of God that you look to for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, or self-control? Again, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. Is there anything that we look to outside of God to, to, to find those things in? So let's examine our life. Let's let the examination run its course. Okay? So a few more questions. Is there anything in your life right now that you have that you run to peace, for joy, for love, for kindness, all the lists that I've just given you. Anything that you have. Is there anything that you do? I'm just so stressed. I just need to go and do this thing. I can't, I can't stand it. I just need peace in my life. I need to run to this thing. If I just go do this thing, everything's going to be okay. What about watch? Is there something that you watch that does that? Does that? Something that you eat? I know, it's king cake season. Is there something you drink? Something that you run to in these things to say, I've had a long day and I just can't deal with it. I need to knock the edge off. Is there something that you run to and say, I'm going to go to this thing before I go to the Father because in this thing, it's easier to access. It's not going to call me on my stuff and I can just do what I want to do. Are there things in our life that we're running to before the Father? Church, these are carved images. These are the things that God says is, is as if you promise faithfulness and you turn around in the same breath and live unfaithfully.
Anything that we take part in that is outside of God, that we go to for the things that God has promised or who he is as a person is idolatry. They have to go. Because you heard it, we said it today as we look at Exodus chapter 20. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. There can be no carved idols, no carved images. But one final word of warning and encouragement. This is probably the hardest one. This examination isn't for just the way that we live outside of church building. I would even say where we live and the world that we live in, idolatry might be more rampant in this building than anywhere else. Here's why. Church and churchy things can make the worst kind of idols. Worship styles, hymns, contemporary songs, instruments, no instruments, type of instruments, preaching styles, theological systems, spiritual disciplines. If you run to, hear me out, if you run to the act of prayer or to the act of reading your Bible, but your prayer and reading your Bible is not connecting you to the Father, that is a religious idol and it is of no use to you. Church and churchy things make the worst kind of idols. Life groups and small groups, if you just had a hard week and, and you just can't wait to, to gather with your people, your tribe, and you've not once gone to the Father and confessed sin, you've not confessed need to him, then that group or those people have become idols for you. Anything that takes God's worship and his glory has to be identified and has to be repented of. We must worship God as he truly is not as we imagine him to be. As we want him to be. As would make easier for us to believe. Our God is true and real. He is not a thought or a theory. He is a God who loves you. And just to be clear, maybe, maybe you have, this is new to you, faith is new to you, and you may have, what you may have gotten from this sermon is, God seems pretty angry if you do something that he doesn't like. To be clear, why God is so angry and so upset is because he had just rescued God's people, his people, out of slavery, 400 years of slavery. They begged for it, rescue us, God, hear us. Please bring us out of slavery. And then all of a sudden, 40 days, 40 days into hearing the law, something that is going to establish for them a way forward, they run back to a different kind of slavery. So God is heartbroken. It's not like it's years or decades or generations, it's 40 days. God was heartbroken because his people chose something lesser than and they will do so time and time and time and time again because we in ourselves in our hearts create idols day upon day hour upon hour and 
so this morning we come to an invitation time here's what I'm asking you to do by the Spirit's grace if you would allow him and I know that he will if you would allow him to examine your heart and to show you the idols that are in your life and to be clear I think that there are things that you do that can be idolatrous and a change of heart is the only thing that would take it from being idolatrous to godly I believe that you can be idolatrous in reading your Bible. That sounds crazy. But I believe when your heart changes, that reading your Bible is the most godly and beneficial thing that you can do. I believe where we live, the idea of coming to church, well, I went to church, that's got to count for something. You don't come to church to get God to tick off your box, came to church this week. You come to church to meet with God and his people, to worship him. And so this morning, I'm not necessarily asking you to change your ways as much as I'm asking you to examine your heart. So when we come to Christ, when Jesus comes, there's never a time where, where we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, all I need you to do is fix the, the mess that I keep making. And instead, what we do is we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to fix the thing that keeps making the messes. So maybe you go back to that list, the things that we do, the things that we watch, the things that we listen to, the things that we eat, the things that we drink, the things that we take part in, all of those things, they're just expressions of the brokenness inside of us. And so as we come this morning, I am asking you, as you examine yourself and you allow the Spirit to bring to the forefront of your life all the things that could be idolatrous in you, in us, I ask that you would give God full access to your heart and allow him to change what's inside of you before you ever ask him to change what's outside of you. For his glory, for our good, that we may worship rightly the right thing and the right one. Church, would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for the gift of today. I know this word is weighty. Sometimes it feels like a pillow. Sometimes it feels like a hammer. But we trust that when you allow us to lay down and rest in it, that is exactly what we need. And on the days that we feel that you are chiseling away things in our life that have been there for a long time, it may hurt, it may be uncomfortable, but it's exactly what we need. We trust your sovereign hand, for we know that the hammer will never slip. That whatever it is that you give us, we give you praise and glory and honor for and whatever it is that you take away we give you praise glory and honor for for we know that you know us better than we know ourselves so help us in this invitation time to respond rightly to what we have heard no idols no gods no idols no things that we worship that aren't you help us Father remove them in your grace, help us to re repent. Change our heart, Father, we pray. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name that we pray. And we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?